Parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. What's the best way to fish like a local? What if you could book a trip with an experienced local guide with the click of a button? Now you can with Fishing Booker. Now anyone can access enjoyable fishing experiences anywhere. Take the legwork out of setting up that trip and explore more than 30,000 fishing experiences at your fingertips. Just go to fishingbooker.com to get started and book your trip with a local guide. That's fishingbooker.com. Fishing Booker. Fish like a local. Clean and protect your firearms with Riptide Armory. Riptide, a veteran-founded business, is dedicated to producing American-made cleaning chemicals and also dedicated to creating American jobs. And that commitment is embodied in every product that's bottled, labeled, and shipped from their Arvada, Colorado facility. Safe for all firearm types and surfaces. Embrace the power of American ingenuity and protect your firearms with the best. Visit RiptideArmory.com. Hey, y'all, I'm KC. And I'm Tyler. And this is the Elk Hunting Series from the Element Podcast. If you want to get on elk, it helps to hang with dudes that know elk. And that ain't us, but luckily the dudes that know elk have cell phones and we call them up. So whether you're a veteran of September or you're just cutting your ivories in the elk woods, you're going to hear something here that'll help you get the full draw this fall. If you find this podcast helpful, poke that subscribe button and go check out our elk hunting playlist on YouTube. Now let's rock and roll. All right, y'all, on the show tonight, we've got Steve Chappell with Elk Camp TV. Steve, what's happening in your world right now, man? Man, I tell you, I am just chomping at the bit to get started elk hunting this fall. Uh, I know the big bulls are shedding velvet right now, and I just got back from uh, scouting in Arizona, and the bulls are really big this year, so I cannot wait to get out there and start hunting them. That's cool. So you have uh, quite a few, um, or quite a bit of moisture this year? You know, we did early on when it was important for antler growth, like in the winter and spring, and so the bulls really did grow giant antlers. But we've had a relatively dry summer. Um, you know, bulls are still giant, but <laughs> what's caused is, is, is dryness and, and not much water in the ponds. It's mostly limited to drinkers and what we call game and fish brick tanks. Mm-hmm. So we're hoping for some monsoons before we hit September. Um, but I think it'll be great either way, and uh, we'll roll with it and have a good time. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Kind of sounds like a standard year for elk in the desert southwest. Is that kind of what you can bet on is, you know, spring moisture and then a dry summer, and then hopefully the monsoons hit pretty soon so they, they grow out good tops? Yeah, absolutely. That's kind of how it goes down, and uh, I'm just thankful that we've got great antler growth this year because it gets you excited when you see all these big bulls on your trail cameras to know what's out there potentially. Yeah, yeah, that's cool. So let's talk about that some, man. Um, I've uh, done a whole lot of OTC hunting in Colorado, and then last year I was lucky enough to draw a uh, Gila Wilderness tag and went on that hunt, but either way, uh, trail cameras are never, they've never been a part of my game when it comes to elk hunting, and I know that you know, the country that you're in down there a lot, at least, you know, where, where you've uh, kind of made your living down there, like that's a huge deal for y'all, right? You know, I'll say it this way, Casey. I, I really um, use trail cameras mostly as just a, a barometer to gauge the antler growth mm. of the bull crop for that year. Yeah. I don't necessarily use them for a tactical advantage, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um I can honestly say this in 100% honesty. I have never used intel from a trail camera to, to kill an elk directly. Mm. Um, the, these bulls really sort around and move from where they, they summer to where, to where they rut. Um, and, and really, my thing is, is just calling them in and having a great time doing that. That's kind of my forte yeah. and, and known for. So 
I don't want to be stuck just with checking trail cameras and trying to chase a couple of particular bulls. I say we're going to go out, we're going to call in a lot of bulls, and when that right one walks in, that we'll shoot him. Um, <laughs> and I, I know there's a lot of uh, you know differing opinions on trail cameras. Um, I mainly just like to use them for the enjoyment of seeing the animals. I like to run them on video mode, so. Mm-hmm. I, these elk in their you know natural environment and uh watch how nasty the bulls are even when they're in velvet toward <laughs> each other. always that order going on it's amazing yeah yeah that's cool man so um tell us a little bit about like where you're at in the elk hunting world uh down there and, and like the dynamic of things you know you, you you put a lot of emphasis on antlers and that's because where you're at is a high trophy potential state correct yeah and with that does come some press pressure and i always tell guys that i'm in a guide you know the first thing i'll say to you to you as a hunter is if we go out there and we hunt without pressuring ourselves up and have a good time together and hunt as a team and hunt as friends i promise you good things will happen for us it's when we hang the whole hunt on the score of the animal and the success of it on the score, I feel like that's when you feel pressured up and you don't do as well. Um, so I like to take that pressure off right away. Sure, I, I feel pressure within myself, and I'm a, I'm a competitive person. <laughs> so I don't want to add that on to the hunt any more than it's already there. And, uh, you know, most guys that I hunt with, they're not saying, oh, you know, 400 bulls, what I'm looking for. And if we don't get that, we're, I'm disappointed. I'm usually the one that's more disappointed in myself, to be honest with you. <laughs> I, I probably put pressure on myself. But um, it is fun. And I decided a long time ago that I would rather hunt in a state like Arizona where the bulls are big like that than to hunt myself elsewhere, you know, where you're hunting small bulls and in and, and rough terrain and all of that. Arizona's just incredible, I gotta say. Yeah, it's mm. uh it's a pretty neat place. I've only been there fishing, so I've never been there to okay. hunt, but I've you know, we've I've done Tyler and I actually went together and went and fished the the Black River uh there in the White Mountains and uh you know it's just yeah. a beautiful place, cool, just cool, just I don't know. It's so unique. You think of the desert Southwest, if you've never been there, as like this just kind of monotonous, kind of hilly, but desert place. And it's just not the case. You know, there's so many uh, intricacies to each terrain and each habitat. And it just seems like a really cool place to, to live. How long have you been down there? Yeah, so I grew up in uh, southern Colorado. That's where I was born. I, I went down there to go to college, actually, to Arizona. Oh, cool. Um Went to college in Prescott there is where I started out. I played baseball at Yavapai College there. Actually uh, pitched on the same team with Kurt Schilling. I, wow, I don't know. That's cool. sweet. I'm sure a lot of people know who Kurt Schilling is, but, yeah, yeah, it was pretty cool to play on that team. We had a great team that year, and that's where I met my uh, wife, who I eventually married. And, uh, uh, yeah, that's how it all got started was me going down there to go to college. And uh, so – Love Arizona, love guiding down there. I also guide in southern Colorado uh, with my dad on private land there, so it's kind of cool. I have the best of both worlds. I get a guide in Arizona during the rut on, you know, the public land, these big giant national forests, and then in southern Colorado, we've got this private land, and uh, we're able to hunt there. It's wild, free-ranging elk, um, but kind of the best of two different worlds, I guess you could say. Yeah, man, that's that's very cool. So did you grow up, like, with the guiding influence around was your dad a god when you were a kid you know he wasn't until i got into my early 20s um, but he was always a hunter and i i seriously grew up in the country on on dirt roads uh, <laughs> you know, middle of nowhere i was this i was this kid who got up and went out with my bb gun and then graduated to a pellet gun and a 22 and so on so you know hunting was my thing in my life and um you know, the first time I got to big game hunt and elk hunt, I was just totally hooked and addicted to it. I knew it's something that I had to do every year for the rest of my life. So <laughs> that's cool. So, uh, you know, if you spend some time with the Red Rider and whatnot, I know you have some experience with this, but would you rather have to eat a marmot or a pine squirrel? Probably <laughs> <laughs> a pine squirrel if I have to. <laughs> really, man, marmots look so fat and nice, but I guess they're just not, not appetizing huh 
just the look of them that looks like a a mountain beaver or something to me. I think that's like a mountain donut. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's cool, man. So tell us a little bit about um, maybe since you grew up in Southern Colorado, you know, very, um, for all intents and purposes, a a lush area, you know, a place you're going to have quite a bit of moisture, um, you know, some high country. um, And then hunting in Arizona is going to be, quite a bit different right i mean it's very moisture dependent like you were saying earlier i mean even dependent so much on human um i don't know interference for lack of a better word right or or help to have water for those elk to to exist down there like what is that like yeah you're you're very right about arizona i mean where you guys fished in the white mountains those are higher elevation units there's more natural water there so you know elk could, could, can live there naturally without, you know, human water sources in that part of the state. However, in the north central part of the state and the northwest part of the state, you're exactly right. Without those man-made water sources and those game and fish trick tanks that basically sustain those elk during the drier parts of the year, there just really couldn't be elk there because that's one thing about elk. They have to have water. They're not like mule deer and, you know, can go without water for long periods of time. Um, and then in Southern Colorado, it kind of depends on where you're at within Southern Colorado. Um, like where we're hunting there is very semi-arid. It's, it's got a similar climate to Arizona, um, you know, maybe 12 to 15 inches of annual precipitation. So it's pretty dry. Oh, wow. Uh, but then we can look up and see, you know, bit the big San Juan Mountains, um, where again you, you've got, you know, nine, ten, eleven, twelve foot thousand elevations, and you do have springs and seeps and creeks and rivers and natural water sources where the elk are sustained by. So, um, yeah, it is very diverse down here in the Southwest, like you said earlier, um, and yeah, you do have everything from those alpine. Uh, climates and vegetation, you know, down to real uh, plainsy cedar pinion and uh, even lower state flats mm-hmm. uh, down in the 6,000 foot elevations. Yeah. So with that said, you know, how much time, and you're a guy who who is very good at calling, how, how much time have you spent uh, hunting water holes and did you grow up doing that in Colorado at all? I can say this. Um, I've guided in Arizona for a little over 20 years now, and I've had one hunter that I've personally guided in all those years kill a bull at a water source. Mm. All the rest of them have been on call-ins. And I will say that one hunter, he was from Colorado. He was one of the most very capable physical hunters I've ever guided. So he, we did call some bulls in on the hunt. It just didn't happen to work out um, as far as shot angles and all of that for him to kill a bull uh, on a call in. Um, but yeah, he was, he was the only guy back in 2008 and uh, yeah, all of the other ones have been on a really fun, dramatic call in. Which <laughs> That's is cool. cool. Yeah. So, so the shot angles were a problem. Uh, what shot angles are you talking about that gave him fits? Yeah, mostly quartering on or the bull coming in from a direction that wasn't anticipated, that type of thing. Um, I really appreciate guys who don't take quartering on shots, and I do talk to my hunters. And, you know, I tell them that if you release an elk on an, uh, an arrow, I should say an arrow on an elk that's not perfect, your nightmare has just begun, as you guys probably know. Mm-hmm. Elk, if you hit them, if you hit them perfectly and double lung shoot them, I mean, they're like a lamb. They, they lay down and die fast. Yeah. But if you make marginal or poor hit on them, they're, they're like a dinosaur. You're, you are not <laughs> going to find them. Um, So, yeah, I really encourage guys to take good shot angles. Um, you know, I will say that in the right situation, if it's, if it's super close – and, and open, uh, you know, I'm not completely opposed to frontal shots, but again, at close range um, and, and, and putting the arrow in the right spot. But yeah, that quartering two shot is a nightmare in the making. Yeah. How, how close and, and what's the right spot on a, on a frontal? Best you can explain it with, you know, out having a visual. Yeah, I kind of say 25 yards and in. 
25 yards and in, and I want that elk to be either standing or maybe just slowly still walking forward at you. You know, you don't want to take a moving shot when they're walking broadside to you, but if they're moving towards you and walking slowly, and I think a lot of guys think the sweet spot is down lower in the brisket area. Um, I believe that that sweet spot is up there kind of in the dark uh, base of the neck mane where you still have that dark neck mane color mm-hmm. uh, so that that arrow is going straight into the lungs and then into the vitals yes. at the right. You don't want to shoot too low and uh, hit that brisket area. Oh, especially if you or have any downward angle to your shot at all. You know, I think that's something that you really have to consider too whenever you're taking that frontal. You know, if you're on an even plane, you know, you're, you're good, uh, especially even on the lower end of it. But, you know, if you're shooting downhill at all or that elk has his head, you know, hung low, yeah, I can definitely see a world where you just end up just clipping meat and, you know, he's bugling the next day. I should also say, you know, I talked about the elk if he's moving slowly towards you. The reason I say that is because I think a frontal shot at an alerted elk, if that elk is stopped and he's alerted to something, mm. it's up and you release that arrow, he can whirl and it can cause, you know, a bad hit. Um, yeah. So I would take that, you know, slowly moving, unaware shot than, than an elk that's alerted. I think that can that can be a bad shot. Hmm. Yeah, so that's a, that's a guy's good... Guy's got to be aware of the situation yeah that's a good tip man i i actually shot uh or i hit a bull high in the shoulder last year which was a terrible thing to happen um but he was alert at 22 yards and um he you know ducked air like a whitetail you know it was very surprising i've never had one do that before you know and and uh, you know he dropped probably four inches or so which uh was the difference in you know hitting double long and not it was uh it was a terrible thing but he was fine you know you know how it goes they're pretty resilient but you still hate to do it but uh i've kind of taken a well not a long path comparatively you know i've hunted elk for uh off and on for eight or nine years and originally started out with my white tail you know lightweight arrows and um actually killed an elk with with one of those and it was fine because it was you know a lethal hit um but i've had some stuff happen both with hits and then just you know, deflections and different things like that that have really led me to shooting a a heavy arrow and a good fixed blade broadhead. We I shoot the uh, the day six pairing, you know, with uh, day six arrows and and those uh, well made broadheads. Uh, do you kind of put restrictions on guys, or at least talk to guys about what their arrow setup should be for elk hunting? Yeah, I do talk to them. I mean, I don't totally dictate it to them, but I especially ask them you know, if at all possible to shoot a fixed blade broadhead, like you say, um, you know, I'm not sponsored by any of these companies, but I will say I've seen incredible results like with the G5 Montech, um, a G5 Striker, I believe it is. Yeah. It's a three blade. That's an awesome head. Um, have had very good success with the Wackums um, and, and also Muzzies and, you know, Slick Tricks. Um, I just really like those cut on contact very well put together heads and i think if they're one they're one piece i mean that that's even better if you can get good flight and you tune your bow well with it Mm -hmm. they probably the best fastest kill i've ever seen on an elk was a bull that i i called across uh he was he he was on the wrong side of the fence i called him on the right side of the fence he was he uh And came onto our side of the fence, and uh, my hunter shot him, and that bull was dead within 30 seconds with a G5 Montech. Wow. Man, smoke city is what we like to call that. That gets me hot, man. That's cool. Um, so do you find that um, elk hits in the heart versus like a double lung, uh, which is the better shot? You know, I know it's like it's hard to choose which one you're going to make. You know, you're really just trying to hit vitals, but when you you know you've had a lot of experience with elk being shot what does it seem like is the more advantageous shot man i don't know that i would really know that to be honest with you i like double lung shot i like i tell my guys i like that shot between a third and a half and halfway up the body height wise Mm -hmm. and mark them to air not toward the shoulder because i've hit some elk personally in the shoulder and, and I kind of gravitate to that. So I tell guys, man, air back like four or five inches behind that shoulder and make that be your aiming spot um, because that shoulder hit is, is just not good. Yes. Um, so 
again, I like that third to halfway up the body and, uh, you know, four or five inches behind the shoulder to me is the sweet spot. Yeah. I guess above the heart. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And realistically, uh, not to downplay the difficulty of killing elk by any means, but they have a large vital area compared to other stuff. I mean, you're shooting it you know, a five gallon bucket or bigger, you know? So like you're saying, you, uh, you don't have to really crowd the shoulder too much, especially if you, you know, have a decently close shot and, and, uh, you know, you feel very confident to be able to hit him in the vitals, you know, it, it makes sense for sure. Yeah. I completely agree with that. Yeah. So from what I've seen of, of where y'all hunting, I'm sure there's more that I haven't seen, but you do a lot of stuff in the P and J country. Is that correct? Uh, you know, I kind of hunt both. If I hunt pine country, I like it to have a little bit of uh, vegetation, you know, a little undergrowth, mm-hmm. not just be open pines. I'll hunt both. What you're, you're correct. PJ country is very good, especially for archery hunting, because you can get in tight. And, and even on bulls with cows, you can get tight to them because the cows can't look and see you approaching. And that's what I like about PJ country is that you can get the wind right, aggressively move in and get close to bulls and, uh, you know, work them without them potentially picking up on you on the approach. Yeah, sure. So I think one of my big questions on that is because I've never really hunted that stuff. Well, I did a little bit, you know, last season in New Mexico, but most of it was pinion country or, uh, you know, big ponderosa pines. I mean, sorry. Yeah. Um, um, I feel like in P&J, you could really set yourself up. Um, I don't know if you could say for failures, but for some difficulties, because uh, you might end up where a bull is on top of you before you know it. Um, You know, with, uh, I mean, I've seen guys on TV before who call in bulls and they're like at five yards all of a sudden walking pretty briskly. And then they they do a cow call to stop him and he (laughs) freaks out, you know. So, like, um, how do you kind of play that to make sure that you have, you know, a... a, uh, you know, you want the elk close, of course, but a realistic shot distance of like that, you know, really comfortable 20, 25 yard type shot. Yeah. It, picking set good setups is everything. And like you say, I'm definitely not above having elk come in and spoil things, especially smaller bulls that mm-hmm. are not, vocal. you know, my dream is a bull that's vocal and is responding well to the calls. And then you can really keep tabs on where he's at and how he's approaching. And I really try to place my hunters to where they have a, you know, a good size opening in front of them where that elk is going to walk across and they're going to have a good shot angle. And then I'm going to drop back and I'm going to try to call that bull to the upwind side of my hunter and, and bring him by for that broadside opportunity. And that bull doesn't even have any idea that that hunter's even in the world. Um, and, and that can even happen too. I can be calling and I can have a silent, like a spike or a raghorn come in on me and blow the setup as well. So mm-hmm. again, I've had that happen, uh, you know, enough times that I mention it here. Um, but yeah, picking good setups is the key. Because if you pick a setup where you just have a little alley, a little opening, and that bulk, especially if you're calling for yourself, um, they're going to come in head on usually, and they're going to stop and look. And when they don't see what they want, they're going to you know, get out of there. Sometimes you'll have an opportunity as they're moving away at a, at a quartering away shot. So a guy needs to be aware of that. Um, but I always try to pick setups where there's plenty of shooting opportunity. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Do you ever, uh, use a decoy in those scenarios where the elk are really looking for something? You know, I do. <laughs> I have really become a believer in those decoys. Cool. Um, I've, Again, I'm not sponsored by this company, but I've had incredible success with that Montana decoy um, Eichler elk is what it's called. Yeah. After Eichler. Um, And I've also seen, I haven't tried it personally, but I've seen really good results with that ultimate predator decoy Mm -hmm. and mount on a bow. Um, it, It is amazing, guys. And I'm sure you've probably seen this with your hunting how those decoys can completely dupe the animal you're hunting. Um, I've literally, <laughs> with that Montana decoy, I can be in the wide open with me, my hunter, and a cameraman. And I've had 100 to 150 elk in front of me and be moving in on them in clear view. And they absolutely don't have a clue about what's going on because of that decoy. 
Mm, that's mm. cool. That takes some intestinal fortitude to actually try <laughs> that, though. You know, like... <laughs> yeah. You feel like it's ridiculous. You really do. I mean, it's almost laughable um, after it happens, you know. My hunter usually is just going, are you kidding me? <laughs> you know? I, I paid you what? And we're going to do what now? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Roll right in on them. And that, that brings up another good point. When I use a decoy... I don't want to act. I don't want to move like I'm a predator. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? I want to just kind of casually stroll at the elk as if I'm just relaxed and moving in, going to join up with them. Yeah, if I can, if there's shade available, I'll stick to the shade as, the, as best I can. And I absolutely use the wind still because if they smell an elk that smells like a human, <laughs> I'm not going to go over. But, uh, yeah, it's it's amazing. And again, I found that just being fairly nonchalant and natural and just strolling in at a nice, easy pace seems to be the, the key to success with those decoys. Um, I, I typically, when I'm calling, by contrast, if I'm guiding someone or if your listeners are hunting with a buddy and they're calling, my biggest key when I'm calling is, is I want to be in a position where that elk cannot see me as the caller as he's approaching. Because as long as he cannot see my calling position, I found that they will continue to approach and move toward the caller and give your hunter a broad shot. Um, whereas if I'm up there calling too close because I want to see the action and I want to have a front row seat, which is very tempting to do, mm-hmm. uh, I found that when they get to that position where they can see the calling position that's when they don't like it and i feel like a lot of times even if you had a decoy there they would be very likely to stand off and look at the decoy and display and bugle at it and expect it to move to them at that point so Mm -hmm. i feel like being further back and keeping that out approaching the the invisible calling position is the better tactic Mm -hmm. yeah i know it's situational but what, what is that distance just if you could throw a number out there yeah, absolutely. For me, it varies mostly from 50 to 100 yards back from my hunter. And you're exactly right. The, the, the terrain and the vegetation is going to dictate how far back I am. So typically, I want to be as close as possible to my hunter, but yet still be my calling position, be invisible to that approaching elk, if that makes sense. So, okay. So, you know, with all that said, that a lot of guys that hunt solo – um, like one of the big issues that I, from what I understand is that they are, um, you know, they're having to call as well. So they can't obviously stand behind themselves. So I kind of have a couple of questions in regards to that. I guess, since we're talking about the decoy stuff, um, would you say that, uh, a decoy is particularly advantageous for a solo hunter who, you know, the, the, the elk is going to use that is going to be using the window principle essentially. And it's going to see your position from where you're calling and lock up a lot of times. Yeah, absolutely. And I would say that guy who's going to be the solo hunter, um, you know, not only do you want to throw your calls around and try to confuse the elk a little bit as he's approaching as to exactly where you're at, um, and, and then get quieter with your calls as he gets closer. But I would be a, a real proponent of having that, uh, you know, either having, you know, like my Montana decoy off and to the side of you, mm-hmm. you know, mounted on a tree or something, or having that ultimate predator decoy mounted on your bow. Yeah. So how, how likely would you be if you didn't have a decoy as a solo hunter to, uh, if you've got a bull coming in, to make a call and move up 40 yards or something like that. Yeah. I, you know, I have to be honest. I haven't used that strategy uh, yet. I think it will come into play at some point if if I'm a solo hunter. Um, But, but I can see the value of that. Absolutely. And that's because as you guys know, and as we're talking about an elk's sense, an elk's elk's depth perception is amazing. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's incredible. Um, from, you know, say 300 yards away and know exactly the three where that call was coming from, even if you're doing your best to project the sound elsewhere. Um, so, yeah, blowing a call or a few calls and then moving forward and setting up 
could be very deadly. Absolutely. It sounds scary. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah. I have to run you over. You know, yeah. what is equally impressive is my inability to know how far away they are. Like, <laughs> it's like, I think that was 80 yards. Ah, maybe it's 600. I don't know. You know, it's like the mountains can really play some tricks on you with, with the way those bugles work sometimes. Is there, well, let's make this a podcast. Is there any way to kind of, that you found to uh, judge distance or is it just experience? Man, I think it's just experience, and I think it's a little bit to do with, you know, just an individual's hearing. Um, You know, I have to say, I I hunt with a lot of different people, and and what I'm most amazed by is how I will hear a bugle, and they'll hear it too, but they'll they'll point 90 degrees different. (laughs) Uh Uh-oh. Yeah. (laughs) And, you know, I, I always say to my wife, the day when I either can't hear the bugling that my client hears or I'm hearing it in the wrong direction is when I'm done as a guide because I feel like then I'm no longer effective. Um, but I just, I think I'm real blessed with, um, directional, good directional hearing and, Mm -hmm. and knowing distance. And I think a lot of that, like you say, just comes with, uh, just being out there and, and, and doing it a lot and, uh, and making mistakes too. I've uh, my share of, uh, moving toward bugling elk that I think further away and, and they're probably closing the distance coming to the call and, Mm -hmm. I bump them and I'm standing up with my pants down and there they are. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Well, uh, I captured one of my silliest uh, mistakes on film a couple years back. Um, I was doing contact bugles early in the morning, just trying to get some answers. And I was in a, a box Canyon and was catching my echo at the end of my call and <laughs> was thinking that it was a, a bull answering quickly, you know, and, and after about three times, I was like, wait a second, that sounds just like my cadence, you know, <laughs> it's just, like you said, you got to mess up a few times and, uh, I haven't had enough years to make all the mistakes yet. So I'm still making them along the way. But, uh, you know, one of the interesting things on that note is, um, I shot a bull in 2018 and, uh, he was, uh, there was quite a few bulls up on this dark timber hill. It was late in the evening, uh, pressure system, weather system had moved in and, and they turned on, you know, just a great, great evening elk hunting and stalked in and actually was j- just pretty much spot and stalked this bull and made cow calls right at the last second to get him to move closer. But right before I called to this bull and he was, uh, by all intents and purposes, a, the herd bull, he was a bigger bodied bull, but not quite a large antlered bull, just, you know, you know how it is in Colorado. Sometimes they just don't always have the genetics to be giants. Well, anyways, yeah. this bull throws his head back and just lets out the purest sounding bugle, but it was about 30 decibels lower than you expected it to be. It was just a little whistle, you know, and if I hadn't been there to see it, I would have assumed he was 200, 300 yards away when really he was 35 yards away when he did it. It was the strangest thing. Do you see pressured animals do anything like that? Or what do you think about that? They can really, really not only make sounds that you just can't even imagine that an elk would make, like you say, unless you were standing right there. But yes, their volume level can vary so much with bugling or cow calling. Um, You know, I've seen cows at various times when they're excited or intense, they, they can be calling loud enough you can hear it a mile away. Or, you like you say with that bull, you can be up 20, 30 yards from them, and it's like they're whispering. Yeah, they, they just, They're just amazing to me. And I, I feel like in all the years of hunting them, I, I learn something new every year, and, and every bull and every setup can be different. You know, I, I like to say that I can kind of classify bulls into three categories. There's bulls who are you know fairly passive there's some who are super aggressive and there's some that are in the middle um and, and you know you have to deal with each one a little differently but uh that's what makes elk hunting so much fun is just- <laughs> how do you so how do you pick that out that quick you know how do you quickly pick something out or the uh the attitude of a bull out like that yeah a lot of times it's just from the sound of their bugle the aggressiveness of the of the bugle the volume of it you know, whether or not they're backing it up with chuckling or grunting, which which to me just adds, you know, more emotion and punctuation to that call, if you will. Um, that That's how I really determine it. Um, so it kind of tells me what I need to get back to them. I will say this, um, kind of what I've learned 
I would say maybe the last five years, I used to just kind of be a, just a pure cow caller, and I called in a lot of elk cow calling, and I still do cow call a lot. But when I use bugling is when I'm dealing with herd bulls, and that's really where I've had my breakthrough uh, calling in some really nice bulls in Arizona is um, is is recognizing that a bull's a herd bull by his aggressiveness, the frequency of his bugling, and then a lot of times as you're moving in, you'll see cows that used to scare me to death, and now I kind of lick my chops and think, okay, this bull's vulnerable because he has cows, and he's going to jealously guard what he has. Now, the, the first mistake I could make is if I bugle from too far away, the natural reaction is he's going to push the cows away or the cows are going to push away and he's going to follow them. But I found if I get right in on him and get right in amongst the herd and it's, it's kind of dicey and hard to do uh, without making a call and I get, in, get myself into that position and get my hunter ready and blow that lip ball or some people call it a display bugle. And again, you have to do it with the right volume, the right tone, and the right emotion. Um, I like to say I'm making a statement at that bull and not asking him a question. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'm here to take your cows. I'm flirting with your cows, and I'm punching you right in the nose, dude. All <laughs> at the same time. And I'm telling you, those, those big aggressive bulls will come right over when you blow that call that way. Man, it's the difference in you want to go outside and let's take it outside, right? Like that's, the, that's the difference. That's right. Totally, absolutely. And 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 when you say that, also winking at his girlfriend or his wife as you're saying. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's cool, man. So, do you, th- you know, since it has that many intricacies to it, is that something you're going to suggest people learn to try to do as new elk callers, or is that? Would you tell guys, hey, if you actually want to go kill elk, just stick to the cow calls and you'll make it happen? Yeah, I would say by and large, that's exactly right. I would say you're going to, in in general, I want to say in general, mm-hmm. because I know guys who are super successful bugling. And you know what I attribute it to? Number one, understanding elk, knowing positioning and when to bugle. And then number two, they sound good when they bugle. You got to sound good, you know, for them to believe it. Um, so I would say if you're an, you know, a, an earlier, you know, um, beginning elk hunter or maybe intermediate and you feel like you're still, you know, trying to master the calls, I would say cow calling is going to get you much further, um, than just bugling at everything. Um, you know, especially with satellite bulls mm-hmm. because you got to know that satellite bulls, that's what they're all about. They're all about, hey, I'm alone. Um, it's it's rutting. I'm feeling it. I want to get with some cows. And uh, that that cow call coming from over there, that's what I want. That's what I'm about. So, um, yeah, I, I would say in my career I've called in 80 or 90% of the bulls I've called in with cow calling Damn. versus bugle. That's cool. Yeah. And that's kind of uh, countercultural compared to what you see a lot in, in media, you know, because – don't get me wrong. It is cool to go out in the woods and rip a bugle, right? It's a lot of fun to do that and to have that chess game with a bull and try to say the right stuff and entice them in. But it, I think it's so cool to uh, maybe speak the sweet tones, you know, and, and be able to really have a high rate of success on call-ins. Um, I want to get into the herd bull stuff here in a little bit. But for the guys who are, you know, trying to kill a bull, like we were just talking about, especially with like the satellites and the young, you know, four and five points and stuff like that. Um, yeah. Can you give us a little insight into that cow calling and what that sounds like? I know that, you know, the standard mew is kind of what everybody learns right off the bat, but you know, what is that, what's that sequence sound like somewhat? Yeah. I'm mostly calling them in with what I call just a standard nasally mew. Uh, and that very person to person, what they, you know, think that sounds like, um, and, and I'm not overdoing it either. Um, I just like to blow it in kind of just a soft, medium, sweet, sexy, nasally three-dimensional way. And I'll say this, um, in, in, in my calling career, I have called in the most bulls with open reed calls versus mouth reads. Mm. Um, even though I can blow a mouth read, Mm -hmm. um, think those are harder for people to master so if you're that guy who's still in that journey of improving on your calling i say man start out with an open read call yeah. map that and and then work on your mouth read calling 
because uh, these open reads just by design they just have that that uh you know, three-dimensional nasal quality to them. Mm-hmm. You know, Tyler and I had this conversation the other day, and I've I've used Rocky Mountain calls, my, my, or Rocky Mountain hunting calls, or, uh, Rocky Jacobson's brand, and you've yeah. got the signature series there. I've used those my whole elk hunting career, but I've always been the mouth diaphragm guy. And him and I talked about this, and I said, you know, I know that the bite and blows or open diaphragm, open read calls, they sound sweeter, but it's the convenience of having that diaphragm in your mouth and being able to do the gamut of what you need to do with it, and that's why I go with that. However, I really think you're onto something there because the best call I've ever used, I don't even think they made it any, make it anymore. My granddad gave it to me. It was like sort of an open read, but it had rubber around it, and it was it was kind of a bite and blow pretty much, you know, and you could just it's almost like you could play the flute with it, you know, uh, because you could just make so many subtle different little sounds to it and whatnot and um i know you kind of have had your hand in uh some design of some of those calls is that right yeah and it's it's mostly been open reads and then mouth reads as well and then most recently a bugle too Mm -hmm. um which i am really proud of and love called the rogue um so this newest open read call that we came out with uh, just for this year, uh, I had it as a prototype last year. We call it the Heartbreaker. Mm. Um, it has an aluminum barrel, which you would think would make it sound harsh and overly loud and brash, but it's mm-hmm. just the opposite. It sounds real mellow and rich. I've, I've got it right here. It, it probably won't come across really well over the phone, but I'll just blow it a couple, three Let's times. do it. I love it. I love it. <laughs> That's what it sounds like. Mm. Um, and I'm just going to blow that call or really any cow call that I'm using. I'm basically just going to blow one to three calls in a sequence. Mm-hmm. And when that bull responds back to me, same way, I'm going to let him bugle, give him time to cock his ears back and listen for me. And then again, I'm just going to give him that little bit of encouragement. I'm not going to overdo it and I'm not going to be too passive. I think you can be both ways. You can you know, blow a bunch of blah, 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 blah at him and wow, not ready for that. Or you can not call back and there's a lot going on out there in the elk woods and here's a bull bugling off in the distance and he thinks there's probably cows with that bull. So I'm going to go there because this person is just not talking enough. This cow's not, not, you know, ready for me. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I like to give them that encouragement every time they bugle, but again, not overdoing it. And and just getting quieter and softer as they get closer seems to just be the tip. Oh, it sounds good. You got me teased up on it. So, <laughs> you know, I noticed it in your your uh, your note there. Let's call it that. You know, of the cow call, you don't spend a lot of time on the front end. It's a, a lot of the more nasal drop off on the back end. Do you found that that's the right sound to be making? I would say so. Yes. Yeah. Um, cause when you listen to a cow call, most of the time they, they can draw it out, but most of the time it's just more of that, you know, one type sound, mm-hmm. just that high, high to low. Yeah. Do you believe in the, uh, the old estrus mew, uh, that you hear guys talking about? Is that, is that really a thing or is that a misnomer? I would say, I would say it's a huge thing. Yeah. Um, I'm basically kind of the guy who coined that estrus scream uh-huh. sound. Yeah. Um, I'm not saying that it is a true estrus sound because I've heard cows do it in the summertime. Mm-hmm. So I'm not saying that it's totally limited to the fall. Mm-hmm. But the intensity level that I've heard cows doing it at in the fall and I've seen the bulls react to it, it's a totally different thing, and it's a sound. It's like a desperation type sound, and it's mixed with a mew again that just sounds absolutely like desperate. Like I need some attention right now, um, and yeah, it's a. It, the sound I'm talking about is a real raspy, loud, uh, three dimensional sound versus a wavy cow call. Yeah, you know, a lot of people when they talk about an estrus call, they're just doing kind of a wavy, whiny. Um, clear cow call. I'm talking about a real raspy, voicey, super aggressive sound that sounds like a, it sounds literally like a chimpanzee screaming in a cave. <laughs> well, you got the old heartbreaker there with you. Do you want to give us an example? I'm going to do it with a mouth read because okay. this 
do not do on an open read. Um, this is a this is almost embarrassing to do, and I'm not real warmed up right now. <laughs> Don't worry, you're gonna sound great. Okay, we can edit out the bad one. <laughs> so here's how it goes. <laughs> You hear how loud and aggressive that is? Yes. That, that just flies in the face of how I call when I was talking earlier about using an open read mm-hmm. or a mouth read and making standard cow calls. When I make that extra scream, that's how I blow it. And I blow it loudly and frequently. And if I get a bull bugling to it, I just walk right at him and I keep making that sound basically until we're going to have a head on collision. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, that sounds cool. Come so, and then quick setup, but I'm telling you, it's intense. It's ama- it's incredible. That's cool. You know, I've uh, experimented with that some, and I don't ever know if it's really working or not because I just tend to just throw everything at them, and I'm really trying to learn a little bit more about, you know, really what to say and when to say it. Um, and on that note, it just would seem to me that if I'm a bull elk. Or say I'm a male of a species, which I am. I'm, I'm married now, you know. But if um, my wife says, "Hey, um, Casey," you know, like you know what I'm saying, it's like why why would you not make that noise um, all the time? You know, like why is that not just the uh, ace in the hole that anytime you're around a bull, you make that noise and he comes in? Yeah, I think a lot of it for me is just my personality. I feel like that is a very aggressive, very intrusive sound out in the woods. And to mm-hmm. be honest, I, I feel almost a little strange about using it around a guy that I've never guided. And I, I'm just <laughs> my guiding. And, and usually how it goes, Casey, is I look at him and I say, okay, I'm going to blow a call that's going to sound really weird to you. It's going to be really loud. It's going to be really different than what I've been doing so far. So just, you know, just, just bear with me here. Okay. And, mm-hmm. and let's get works and when i usually do it is is in this scenario when there's nothing going on no bulls are bugling nothing happening so i feel like i've got nothing to lose i'm not going to spoil mm. anything by call by doing it yeah it's amazing how i i would literally say seriously and i have my cousin would back this up who's filmed with me a lot i would say eight to nine times out of ten when there's nothing going on and we start walking and tr- trolling, and I start making that sound. We have an encounter with a bull within 15 minutes of doing that. Oh, oh man, that's cool. <laughs> I can live by those stats. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. <laughs> it makes everybody a believer, including me. I, I need to be, be reinforced that that sound works. But again, it's 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 a really aggressive sound, and I wouldn't just like the bugling. I wouldn't encourage your listeners to just go, "Oh yeah, that's the ace in the hole." I'm going to go out and blow that. That's going to be my go-to call. Um, it, you know, you, you want to practice it and develop it to where it sounds really elk-like before you try it out on the elk. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Yeah, 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 very cool. So the state of Arizona is uh-huh. a big bull state, and that's where you've, uh, you know, done a ton of guiding, and I know you've killed some big bulls yourself as well as guided a ton of them, right? And what that ends up being is, I, I'm, a, I'm making assumptions, um, is that... Uh, a lot of herd bulls get taken in Arizona, right? Because you're looking for the big bulls that are in the country. And usually big bulls translates to the bulls with cows. And so kind of moving a little bit away from the guys who are just trying to kill an elk and find the way to kill an elk. Um, if a guy really wants to uh, say, you know, I've killed a few or I want to, you know, I want me versus the baddest animal in the woods or whatever it is, and they want to target herd bulls. What are some of the things uh, to consider when you're doing that? Yeah, I say first, you'll get to where you can recognize a herd bull, like I was mentioned earlier, by how he sounds bugling, by the frequency of his bugling. And then if you have a couple, one or two other bulls bugling, you can usually tell which one is the herd bull by how he answers back to the other bulls. Like mm. one of the satellite bulls bugles, 
you can usually hear a little less aggression in the bugle, but then you'll hear the herd bull answer him or, or maybe even cut him off. And, and, and to me, herd bulls, they have one of two sounds. They're, they either have a super high, shrill bugle with a real heavy ending to it, a real <clears throat> at the end, mm-hmm. and, and uh, you know, heavy grunts or heavy chuckles versus satellite bulls, or they'll do that raspy lip ball sound mm-hmm. and follow it up with grunting mostly. Um, so if you can get to where you can recognize, not saying that that bull's going to be 400 just because he sounds great, <laughs> but a good starting point to be able to recognize, hey, I can tell that that bull's the one that's got the cows versus the this one here and that one over mm-hmm. there. I think you can narrow it down a lot better and spend your time chasing the more mature bulls that way and eventually have an encounter. I'll give you a specific example. Last year, my archery hunter, on the first three mornings of his hunt, we called in and he got shots at three mature herd bulls. Oh my! On the first three mornings. Now we didn't we didn't get any of them. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> a, little, a, little bit of bull, a little bit of bull fever came into play. I understand. Uh, but I'm telling you, the first one within the first hour of his hunt was a 370 to 380 absolute stud of a bull. We were, we, 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 I blew a bugle. He answered in the distance. We started approaching him. He didn't make another sound. He completely stopped bugling. And as we were moving toward him, I looked and I saw a couple of cows kind of crossed in front of us. And thankfully, I saw them and they didn't see us. And then I looked off in the direction where those cows had come from. And there's this, I can tell it's a bull's legs and chest. I can see his neck mane mm-hmm. kind of through a tree. And at that point, he was only about 80, 80 to 100 yards away. And I whispered to my hunter, I said, you stay right here. I'm going to creep back just out of sight, and I'm going to bugle at him, so knock an arrow. And and I'm not kidding, guys. The minute I blew that lip ball bugle, as I explained it, that bull fired off a bugle at me and just came sauntering right over to us and uh, right up in my hunter's face. Oh, oh man. man. And, and that, that, that literally happened three mornings in a row, the same scenario. <laughs> Golly, dude, that's cool. So you that my next question, you kind of answered there, but you want to sound like his equal match whenever you, you do make that contact with him. Is that right? I, I totally agree with that. Okay. I, want to sound like I'm a real threat to him and a potential to steal his cows away because I believe those cows pick a bull by, by not only his antler size but also just his posturing and how he sounds mm-hmm. sound like a big mature bull that interests the cows and also it you know gets gets his hackles up thinking yeah this guy's a player over here I'm gonna have to go check him out and maybe deal with him Mm, man, that's cool. <laughs> You've got me fired up, man. That's that is an awesome story, and and I appreciate your your quality of storytelling there too, because I could just I can just envision it, and it just makes me so excited for what's going to happen in less than a month now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As and I'll say to my hunter's credit, that that guy I was hunting with, he did kill a herd bull on day ten of the hunt. We called in another herd right. bull, dude. That's yeah, that's something there because I had to hunt the whole season last year and you know once you get past about day seven or eight it takes a real dude to still pull it together and make it happen after you've hunted that long so you know kudos to him on that deal for sure yeah and you guys i'm sure you've experienced this a lot of times what can happen is the hunt can start off you can have some encounters and then you can get some bad weather Mm -hmm. uh, in arizona what we get is we can get high winds and i've just found when there's high winds it makes it very difficult even if i can still hear bugling it seems like they bugle way less when it's windy they do not like 20 and 30 mile an hour winds it just makes them very nervous about giving away their position Mm -hmm. so my last question for you steve is um we've had a lot of people give different answers to this type of question but how do you find elk when you go walking out in the woods? How are you locating a bull to hunt? Are you using cow calls? Are you using bugles? Are you, you know, glassing? How does that typically look for you? Man, as far as calling, I I hate to just dodge the question, but I do use both. 
usually when I'm cow calling, um, you know, I'll start off with kind of medium volume cow calls and then I'll build toward louder, more echoey cow calls because you can definitely locate bulls by cow calling, you know, if you do it loud enough and, in the, you know, in the right way. Um, but I've gotten more and more toward, you know, using my rope bugle tube and just throwing out a high pitched bugle. And then if I don't get anything to that, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll sit there and wait for maybe five or 10 seconds. If I don't get an answer, I'll add a, a chuckle to it. Um, so, so yeah, again, I'll use both okay. uh, to, to, to solicit an answer. And then as far as finding elk uh, in general, you know, what I'm looking for is, uh, I'm sure a lot of your listeners know this, elk need these things to, to basically exist and survive. They need water. They need feed and they need good cover. And also I'll add to that, you know, seclusion and isolation. Uh, most elk like better than being pressured and close to people. Although in Arizona, there are elk real close to towns and, real <laughs> close, you know, yeah. civilization. But, but yeah, in general, by and large, you know, elk, elk need good shady spots to bed. They have to water and, uh, and they have to have feed. And if you find those three things in an area, you know, you're and you're in elk habitat. You're generally going to find them. They're yeah. just not going to be where there's not water. That's, yeah, that's harder. Yeah, yeah, for sure, man. So if uh, if say our listeners are interested in in amping up or at least getting into the calling game, can you make a few su- suggestions of like what maybe they should look into getting to uh, maybe start doing some elk calling? Yeah, the first thing I would encourage them to do is to, um, you know, listen to real elk as much as possible. And, you know, there's a lot of good stuff out there on YouTube. Um, you know, there's a lot of great elk callers out there these days with a, a lot to offer. I think every person has a di- something different to offer maybe. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I would tell them to, you know, pick and choose and buy into what they think will work for them from, from each person. Um, as far as calls go, um, gosh, there's so many calls out in the market. I, I would say the first thing is, don't get suckered by the name of the call or the fact that it's necessarily brand new. You know, my heartbreaker's brand new. And I think it's got a pretty cool name, but the, <laughs> the best thing about it, it sounds good. And that's the key. A call that sounds good will still call elk in 20, 30, 50 years from now. So tonal quality is, is the key. Um, and, and again, when I blow a call, I'm looking for that. You know, first of all, it needs to have a three dimensional quality to it. And just a nasally sweetness to it is, is what I look for. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, back before COVID, I'd just go into Bass Pro Shops and blow calls, you know. But uh, <laughs> they might yeah. be a little weird about that right now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Just crack the package open. Oh, yeah. Give two toots and stick it back in. <laughs> oh, I used to test duck calls like that all the time, man. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I remember doing some outdoor shows where people would come up and yeah, they'd want to blow on my bugle or whatever. I'd be like, Are you sure? You sure do that? <laughs> See man, sharing a diaphragm with a guy is just about it's a little blow on my list, man. <laughs> yeah. I have not done that. I have not done that. <laughs> oh, that's funny. So um what about the diaphragm calls? You you know, there's hundreds and they're all different colors and whatnot. You know, I, you got a couple that you really like that you kinda worked on? Yeah, so I've got these three reads in my signature series. I've got the Elk Camp, the Royal Point, and the Tines Up. Again, I think they have cool names. You know, that's a good start. <laughs> yeah. But I think the reason they sound good is because of, uh, first of all, they're, they're built on a, a, you know, a more narrow frame. So you don't have a big, wide latex. I feel like the older style calls that you have a big, wide latex, they, re- they just require way more air pressure to get sound out of. And I want to call that if I just barely lean on it, just barely breathe on it, I can get sound out of it. And then I can determine my pitches and my volumes by just my tongue pressure and my air pressure. Um, so that's the start right there. And then, you know, the differences in the, in the reeds is going to be by latex thickness, latex stretch, uh, you know, whether they have a, a, what's called a pallet plate on them or not. I'm a huge believer in that pallet plate. Mm-hmm. Uh, came out in the 90s that, you know, Rocky Jacobson invented and that, you know, Primo's manufactured their calls on for years and, and still do. And, and, of course, Rocky Mountain Hunting Calls, who I work with, uh, really builds, you know, calls, calls around that pallet plate design that Rocky invented. 
I would encourage your listeners that that's where they want to start is, is with a mouth read with a palate plate and go from there and, and just try some different ones out and see what fits their mouth the best, see what sounds the best for them. Again, um, when I blow a mouth read, I want one that's sensitive and will make sounds without a lot of air pressure. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. Makes good, sense. good tips there, man. So, um, I know that y'all are about to really ramp up and pretty much, if you do hunt the West, like things are about to get real exciting, right? Um, but y'all uh, do a lot of film production stuff, and um, I might be wrong, but is do y'all have stuff running this quarter right now? Yeah, thank you for asking, because I haven't even touched on that. Um, <laughs> My show Elk Camp is actually airing right now on the Sportsman Channel. In fact, it aired today from 5.30 p.m. to 6. I mean, nice. it had aired right before we got on the phone here. <laughs> um, so it, it, it aired. It's in its third season, so I'm super pumped about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, it airs the third and fourth quarters of the year. So it basically starts in late June and airs through December. Um, it's on Sportsman Channel. Uh, so if any of your listeners out there have direct TV or dish network, they can pick it up there. Um, I also, I don't have it, but I know you can get it on sling. Um, I'm sure I'm missing a lot of other places that, that it would air. Um, I, I have some season one episodes loaded onto YouTube. Not all of the season one episodes, but some are on YouTube. I'm not able to air current episodes, if you know what I mean, because, mm-hmm. The, the network expects you to deliver exclusive episodes to them that sure. they can have here. Um, but yeah, I'm just really excited about the show and going out and uh, getting some new fresh footage again this year. And, and uh, I also edit the show. So that's kind of a love hate relationship. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Tyler's our editor. He understands where you're coming from for sure. <laughs> Tyler, it's very, very time consuming and meticulous. And if you're a perfectionist, it can literally drive you crazy. I mean, um, I, the good news for me is I just delivered my final uh, season three episode to the network. It uh, I uploaded it to the network. It got there at about five thirty a.m. this morning, so I feel like I'm free now. <laughs> I'm free to go hunt elk now. Mm, that's a good feeling. <laughs> that's right, man. That yeah. is that is right. Well, we're all looking forward to it, man. So Monday nights, um, five thirty to six or something like that. You said we can check so, that. So- I'll, I'll simplify this. So it, the, the prime time airing is 7.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Gotcha. Cool. Yeah. So you've got Central, so it airs 6.30 Central, 5.30 Mountain Time. It also has an earlier airing on Mondays. It airs at, at uh, 1.30 p.m. Eastern, so guys can adjust their you know their, their viewing for that. Cool. Um, also, obviously, DVR it and record it and watch it at your leisure. And then it has a real late night, Saturday night slash Sunday morning airing. It's it's like 3 a.m. Sunday morning. If you're on the if you're on Pacific time, it would be midnight Pacific time Saturday night. Yeah, awesome man. We'll we'll put some of those times down in the in the notes below just so people can make sure and catch it. Um, y'all are a great Instagram follow too, and I uh, just appreciate some of the knowledge and stuff that you put out there on all your platforms uh, and. Man, I've been following you for, for a little while, you know, probably since I really got into the elk hunting stuff, you know, eight or so years ago. And uh, I just really appreciate your uh, vantage on things. I, I appreciate, you know, your approach to things. You're a very, um, very kind person, it seems, Steve. So thank you so much for spending some time with us tonight, man. Um, uh, oh, do you still guide for the public? Can someone book a hunt with you right now? Yeah, oh, absolutely. Um, you know, Arizona, the, the key thing about Arizona is they have to draw a tag. So the hurdle to hunting with me personally in Arizona is drawing a tag. Mm-hmm. I would welcome anyone who's interested in applying for tags. And, you know, I've also got this zero hunt fees program where if someone doesn't like the thought of paying six or $7,000 for a guided hunt, I've got a zero hunt fees program where they can pay $349 a year. That covers the cost of their guided hunt if they draw a tag. And uh, I've had some members draw their very first year. So, wow. you know, not sell that too big, but if any, any of your interest, uh, if, uh, listeners are interested, they can check out zerohuntfees.com. And if that's of interest to them, they feel free to get a hold of me. I'd love to visit with them about it. Yes, so, that's a good idea. We'll man. definitely link to that below cool. because I think I was talking to somebody about this the other day, and that, that 
is a game changer, man, for sure. I think that that is a, that's a great, great idea on y'all's part. Um, and I wish somebody would do it for sheep hunting too. So just to <laughs> yeah. drop a little bone there if you can ever figure <laughs> that out. out. <laughs> but anyway, Steve, thanks so much for your time tonight, man. We really, really appreciate it, and uh, good luck this season. Thank you, guys. It's been a real blessing to be on here with you guys, and uh, and uh, best of luck on your hunts this year. And, um, yeah, thank you again. It's been really fun to be on with you guys. And thanks thanks to the listeners. Now that was some killer info. Don't forget to subscribe, and a five-star review means a ton to us. Remember, this is your element. Living it. Clean and protect your firearms with Riptide Armory. Riptide, a veteran-founded business, is dedicated to producing American-made cleaning chemicals and also dedicated to creating American jobs. And that commitment is embodied in every product that's bottled, labeled, and shipped from their Arvada, Colorado facility. Safe for all firearm types and surfaces. Embrace the power of American ingenuity and protect your firearms with the best. Visit RiptideArmory.com. I've been telling you guys about Land.com to help you find a place to call your own and do all the hunting and fishing and hanging with the family that you want. While owning your own piece of land is something that can generate memories, I can speak to this personally because my family, we own a couple small, beautiful little backcountry parcels it can also generate income in both the near and long term like starting a rental business slash family compound that can benefit both this and future generations check out the hundreds of thousands of rural listings from across america enough dreaming about it land.com is the place to find and invest in your open space